So we're in the middle of this series. Uh, we're looking at the book of Philippians in the New Testament, which is basically a, a 2,000-year-old piece of mail. It's an ancient uh, letter written from the Apostle Paul, who was under house arrest in Rome. He was imprisoned, had a guard stationed at his door. He was there for two years. And he was writing it to a group of Christians in a city called Philippi, a church there that he'd founded 10 years before. Um, and Philippi is sort of roughly in uh, northern Greece. So it's an ancient document we're looking at. And I think it's easy, isn't it, when you come to look at the Bible and come to study it, to think, oh, it was written 2,000 years ago. And the people back then, their lives are so different to our lives now. So it's hard to think of it being relevant sometimes when we read the Bible. But actually, the, the passage we're looking at today, we see that the situation in the church in Philippi that Paul was writing into is actually very similar to the situation that we're in now. So it's actually very relevant. Um, Paul uses two words to describe the situation in Philippi, the culture there. I don't know if you noticed that. Anyone notice that in verse 15? I won't make you put your hands up because we're British. But um, have a look. See if you can see the two words that Paul uses to describe the Philippians' culture. A crooked and twisted generation. Right? And I was thinking about it. I think it's hard to think of two better words to describe our culture. The culture we live in. So if something is crooked and twisted, it means it's off, off the straights. It's, it's not what it's meant to be. When you use a, a piece of wood, a beam of wood in building work or in carpentry, it needs to be straight and true. And if it's crooked or if it's twisted, then it's, it's offline. It's, it's not as it's meant to be. And that's the way with, with our world, isn't it? In the world we live in, our culture, something feels not quite right. It feels like something's wrong. It's not as it's meant to be. It's crooked. I was reading an article um, just this week about loneliness, saying that loneliness is an epidemic in our culture. And it was saying that um, of all the age brackets that responded to this survey, the age bracket 16 to 24 was the most likely to experience loneliness. 33% of people, one in three people in that age bracket, say they're lonely. More than any other age bracket, including the over 70s. And that's the, the age group that's meant to be going out and forming deep and lasting friendships at that age that, that lasts for the rest of your life. The most connected generation ever in terms of social media, but yet the most lonely. doesn't feel right, does it? Something's wrong. And loneliness is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the effects of social media. That the number of mental health issues in teenagers, depression, anxiety, even suicides, something is not right with our world. I think it's kind of hard to look at the news without seeing something uh, that feels just a bit evil and twisted and, and crooked. Um, and I, was, I had a look, I, I, was, I could have thought of five, eight, ten examples from the news just this week of things that are just evil in our world. I thought I, I won't share details because it's just a bit... It's not nice to share in a setting like this, but there's so many examples in our world of it just feels crooked. Something's not quite right. And everyone agrees about this. No one disagrees. There's something wrong with our world. I remember a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine um, from university who's an atheist, not a Christian. And uh, we both graduated from Bristol University. He moved to London, got a job in a management consultancy in the center of London near London Bridge, very well paid. I also moved to London not very well paid. I was doing a year out, a voluntary year. So I was living on poverty, <laughs> um, working with Christian students in Christian unions. And uh, we met up for a drink just to catch up. Um, and we were sharing about how things were going. He was sharing about his job and uh, what he was doing and the money he was earning. And I was sharing about what I was doing with, with Christian students. And he was kind of scratching his head a bit and wondering, why would I be doing that if I could be doing what he's doing and earning loads of money? And we were standing there um, outside this pub near London Bridge, um, watching the world go by and we watched young professionals in a, the kind of position he was in and we watched homeless people begging on the streets, people uh, caught in the grip of addiction and, 
and abuse and, and poverty. And we, we disagree on lots of things, me and this, this friend, um, but there was one thing we did agree on in our conversation, that there was something wrong with the world. We were talking about it, and he said, yeah, something's not right, is it? We were talking about looking at what we saw and talking about current affairs. He said, yeah, something's not right. It's something we can all agree on. And I think it's easy when we look at our world to get a bit discouraged by it and to think, oh, it's, it's worse than ever. In our, in our day and age, our culture is worse than ever, and it's getting worse, thinking about what I was saying about social media. And we think, oh, it's just impossible for us to make a difference. Everything's going downhill. Maybe you're wired to think like that. And that's why I think the passage we're looking at today is really helpful. Um, because, first of all, the passage we're looking at today is, is realistic. And it says, actually, the problem of the world being crooked and twisted is not just our problem. It might feel like it. It might feel like it's worse than it's ever been. But actually, Paul was able to say about the Philippians that the culture of their day was crooked and twisted. And that's because it's always been that way. Every generation, ever since Adam and Eve, has been crooked and twisted because the reason is not society. The reason is in the human heart. The root problem is inside. Back to the conversation with my friend. We, we didn't just agree on the problem, actually. It, it turned out we also agreed on the, the cause of the problem. As we were talking about it and talking about, well, why is the world like this? He said, and I agreed with him, well, it's humans, isn't it? Humans are the problem. It, uh, it's human selfishness that causes all these problems in our world. And I said, yeah. And the Bible says, yeah. See, the root problem doesn't change. The root problem is the human heart. That's why every generation, from the Philippians to ours, has been and is crooked and twisted. So it's not just our problem, and that's reassuring. Um, but this passage is also helpful because it says there's hope. There's hope in the middle of living in that kind of culture. See, Paul's heart for the Philippians, living in that kind of culture, from his jail in, in, in Rome, was that they would not just survive in that kind of environment, but they would thrive. His heart for them was that they would flourish and actually grow, that they would make a difference in their world. And so he wrote the letter to encourage them to do that. And in this passage that we're looking at today, he describes for them how that can happen. He describes how they can make a difference in their crooked and twisted generation. And that's why it's so helpful for us to be looking at this passage today. So if you've got your Bibles, keep it open, Philippians chapter 2. Before we get into the passage, just a reminder of the context, so where we've come from. So um, Paul is in his, in his uh, prison in Rome. The Philippians have sent this guy called Epaphroditus, one of their guys, one of their best guys, sent him to Paul with a gift and to, to pass on some news. So Paul's heard about what's happening in the church. Um, he's heard they're facing challenges. There's opposition to Christians, to, to the faith in Philippi. Um, so they're facing external opposition. And there's also some disunity going on. There's, there's some, some discontent. There's some, some murmurings. There's some um, arguments going on. So Paul writes to them to encourage them. He says, stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel and be united and live out your faith. And last week, Mike was preaching. And Mike reminded us, he showed us, that the, really the main point of Paul's letter is found in chapter 1, verse 27. So if you've got your Bible open, have a look at that. Chapter 1, verse 27. This is really the main point of Paul's letter. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's his heart for them. He says, stand firm, be united, stand together, live it out. 
That's what this letter is all about. Then he goes on in chapter 2 to talk a little bit about how that works, and he goes ultimately to Jesus as the, 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 the ultimate example of living out what it looks like to be a Christian. And his example is humility. Jesus was in heaven with God, and he goes down to become a man. And he goes down again to become a servant. And he goes down again to go to the cross. He sets this incredible example of humility. He's God, and he became nothing. Amazing. And Paul says, that's the kind of mind you should have among you as you're, as you're seeking to live together. So that's the, the sort of context to where we are today. Today, verse 12, Paul kind of comes back to his main point. So let's have a look at verse 12 together. He says, therefore, my beloved, so in light of what I've just said about Jesus and his example is humility, therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, so he's really underlining the importance of what he's about to say. It's important to do this whether I'm with you or not. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's kind of coming back to his main point here. Now, these um, verses, these words are easily misunderstood. So I want to just say briefly about what this doesn't mean and then try and explain what it does mean. So work out your salvation doesn't mean that salvation is something you work for, as in it's something you earn. And some people have interpreted these verses to mean that, that it's like God sets us an assignment. He says, right, here you go. Here's a class assignment. Be as good as you can. Love people as well as you can. Be as humble as you can. And I'll come back at the end of the day and I'll mark you. If you've done well enough, then you get salvation. That's what people think it's like. It's not that. Okay, it's not that. Some people think it's like salvation is something you work on. So it's a bit like a DIY project. Like God gives us a project to do. Make this piece of furniture and we shape it and we polish it and we make it as good as it can be. And we sort of make our Christian life as good as it can be. God's letting us get on with it by ourselves. It's a DIY project. Work on your salvation to be as good a Christian as you can be. Okay, it's not that either. So... What does it mean? Well, salvation is something we're given for free. It's a gift. We're given a new relationship with God. He gives us a new spiritual life within us. He gives us a new identity, a, a, a new status. And what Paul's saying here is just let that play out in your life. Just be who you are. You're a new person, so be who you are. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. Um, so we had the royal wedding recently, right? Harry and Meghan, everyone loved it. Great day, sunshine. Um, just imagine with me for a minute. Okay, five years down the line. Harry and Meghan are there. They've settled into their new roles. They're having a great time, enjoying life. But really, they'd like children. And they've discovered they, they can't have children. They can't conceive. They've tried everything. But it's not happening. And it's hard for them. It's, it's causing heartache. They go to Botswana, a place where Harry does a lot of charity work, where he took her when they started their romance. And they visit an orphanage. And they meet a little a boy, a teenage orphan. Parents both killed in a war. And th something about this guy, they're just... They fall in love with him. They're attached to him. And they have a great time. They go home. A week later, the orphanage gets a letter, and they say, we'd like to adopt this boy, this boy from the orphanage. We've fallen in love with him. We can't have children. We want to adopt um, a boy from Botswana. In that moment, everything changes for that boy. He's adopted into the royal family. He suddenly has access to a whole new set of privileges, doesn't he? A, a new uh, name, new connections, incredible wealth, title, fortune. It's a new identity for him. And because of his new status, the way he then lives out his life is going to change, isn't it? It has to change because of who he now is. So he's going to hold himself differently. He's going to 
be representing a new set of values, British values. You've got to learn what those are and learn how, what it means to live them out. How do I be British now? He's going to be under scrutiny like he's never been before. People will watch his every move, and some people will support his every step. Some people will be against his every step. Whatever happens, life is going to change. And I think that's more like what Paul's saying here. So he, Paul is saying, you, you all, he's speaking to the church, you've been adopted by the king. You're in a new family. You've got a new status. And work it out. Live it out. Put it into practice. Be who you are. It's not about earning. That guy didn't earn his status. It was given to him as a gift. Live it out. You're a new person. Be who you are. And so we need to then embody this new, these new values. And the new set of values are all about the new kingdom. And they're, they're embodied by Jesus. So what are the new values? Well, that's chapter 2, first half. Jesus goes down. Jesus could have been equal with God, where well, he was equal with God, and he didn't consider that something to be grasped, but he went down and down and down to the cross. The values of our new family is the way of the cross, and that's what we're to embody. That's what we're to live out. That's what Paul's saying here. So what's this about fear and trembling? Why fear and trembling? Does it mean that we need to live out our salvation kind of scared of getting it wrong, scared of God punishing us? Well, no. I don't think it's that. I think what Paul means is explained in verse 13, the next verse. Let's have a look down at verse 13. For, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because of a knowledge of who it is that's working in us. So back to our illustration, um, the, the boy in his orphanage, the day arrives, he gets on the plane, he's nervous, and he's being told what to expect. He lands at Heathrow, walks through the arrival doors, and what greets him is something like he's never seen before. The room full of photographers and, and cameras and people trying to get up to him. Security guards surround him, take him to his car, goes back to the palace. Sits down with a servant. The servant says, I'm afraid Harry and Meghan are a bit busy. They've got a lot of engagements. So we've, you've been assigned another mentor to teach you what it means to be a member of the royal family, to show you how to live this life out. Um, and it's the Queen's taking a step back from her responsibilities. She's going to be your private mentor for the next year. She's going to be with you when you wake up. She's going to go through every step of the day with you, talk you through how exactly to, to react, what to say, what to do, how to hold yourself. Um, and you see the look on this guy's face. Well, how would you feel? How would you feel? You'd be pretty scared, wouldn't you? Servant sees the look and says, but don't worry. She's looking forward to it. She can't wait. She loves you, you know. So when we work out our salvation, it's with fear and trembling because for Christians, it's, it's like that, but even more so. It's not the queen that's living next to us. It's the God of heaven living in us. The God of heaven who created the universe living inside us to help us, to, to work in us, to, to produce this life in us. And that's why we, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because he's God. But we're not scared because he loves us. He's for us our father so what is it that god does in us it's there in the verse first of all he, he gives us new desires he works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure so he gives us a desire for his pleasure and he gives us the ability to carry that out as well he gives us new spiritual desires and the ability to carry them out i remember when i became a christian about maybe a, a year or so after maybe a few months after i became a christian sort of age 14 ish um i, I was brought up to read the bible every day and I, I was told that it's what a good Christian does. So I did it because I wanted to be a good Christian, right? And I did it really as a duty because I knew I should. 
Um, and there, but there was one, one day when I was maybe 14 or so, and I remember I'd, I'd given up TV for Lent because I thought it was having a bit too much of a control over me, and I was a, a bit of a loose end in the evening. What do I do and not watch TV? And I thought, I know, I'll read my Bible because I suddenly felt like I wanted to. And I sat there and read my Bible, and I thought, wow, this is the first time I've read my Bible, and it's not been because it's a duty. I felt like I wanted to. There was a new spiritual desire in me for, for God and to, to hear from him and to speak to him and to pray. And that wasn't coming from me. That was God working in me. That's what God does in Christians. He gives us new spiritual desires, desires to read his word, desires to, to talk to him in prayer, desires to get out and be with our, our fellow Christians at, at a life group or on a Sunday or at a prayer meeting, desires to, to serve someone in need because they're in need even though it's going to cost us. New spiritual desires. But not only that, he gives us the ability to carry them out. He works in us to will and to work. Because often carrying out those desires is hard, isn't it? There's barriers. You want to read the Bible, you want to pray, but the alarm goes off and you're tired. And it's hard just getting over the line. And you, you want to go out and go to that life group, but it's, it's raining and it's cold and there's a good TV show on. and It's hard to get over the line and leave the house. And it's God who gives us the ability to do that. Not only the desire, but to actually put it into practice. He's given us this new life. And it's God who works in us. So, Paul says, work it out with, with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. And just in case the Philippians weren't sure what that actually looks like in practice, Paul then gets really practical. So the next thing he says in verse 14 is very practical, uncomfortably practical actually. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You think, okay, Paul, all right. I was quite enjoying the sort of abstract ideas, he comes right down to, to details, doesn't he? Very practical. Do everything without grumbling. And grumbling comes very naturally to us, doesn't it? It's, a, it's just a very natural reaction. When life doesn't go our way, something doesn't happen that we wanted it to, it's just annoying. <laughs> and we grumble and we complain. And if you want an illustration of this, just spend a day with a five-year-old and try and ask them a few times to do something they don't want to do. And the natural instinctive reaction is a whine. Oh. Do I have to? Just spend a day with a five-year-old. But it's not just them, is it? We all have that inside us. We all have the wine inside us. Do I have to? Really? It comes so naturally to grumble. And that's because we've all got inside us the same root problem. We were talking about before, the root problem of selfishness, of me first. But the new life, the new spiritual life that God works within us is the opposite of that. So Jesus is the opposite of that. Jesus is you first. Jesus goes the way of the cross, and Jesus does it without complaining or grumbling or arguing. Now, I, I think we're blessed at Trinity to not be characterized by a spirit of grumbling. I think some churches are characterized by that spirit of grumbling and complaining and, and arguing, and I think we're not, and we, we've got God to thank for that, and I'm grateful for that. I think we're blessed. But I also think it's important not to be complacent. So it's very easy for this kind of spirit to seep into a church. I think that's why Paul warns the Philippians. He says, don't go here. It's easy to go there and don't do it. Keep living out your faith. And I think it's especially important when you think of the possible impact. Just imagine if every Christian could do all things without grumbling or complaining. Imagine the impact that would have. In the church, there'd be far fewer divisions, wouldn't there? And to a watching world, wouldn't it be so attractive to see that? And so Paul has this vision. Paul has a big vision for the impact it could have for a group of Christians to live this out. And so he shares that vision with them. 
he goes ahead in the next section and says, okay, I want you to live like this because this is the impact you could have. This is why it's so important. He says in verse 15, do this so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. His, his big idea here is when you live this out, when you live out the Jesus-shaped life, when you live out the way of the cross, you shine. You shine. And he has a vision for what it could look like for a church to be like this. And he shares that with them, and that's why he goes here. Now, I think we need to be careful. Being blameless and innocent doesn't mean perfect. Okay, we can't be perfect. It kind of means unmixed. It means pure, like nothing's sort of infiltrating it. And so it means living a, the, the Jesus-shaped life in a pure way. It means being humble. It means accepting our weakness. It means coming to him for forgiveness. It means accepting his love in spite of our weakness and sin. And it means having joy when we know how much we've been forgiven. And when we see his example, it means following it and, and going the way of the cross ourselves. And, and, and then we do everything without grumbling. And that's what it looks like. It's not being perfect. It's being forgiven and living that out. And when we do that, we will shine. And the reason we will shine when we do that is because we stand out. Because the background we're doing it against is, is dark. A light stands out against the darkness, doesn't it? Because we're living out our faith in a crooked and twisted generation. Then we stand out. And our culture is that. Our culture is me first. Our culture is I'm at the center of my universe. Our culture is a, a selfie generation, right? And we're told that's good. And that's why we stand out when we live this life. And look, maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know the experience of being in a workplace, um, being in a, a friendship group, and you're, all you're doing is living out your, your faith. You're just living out what it looks like to be Jesus in that situation. You're going the way of the cross. You see a need and you meet it, even though it costs you. And you find that because you're living out a, a life of no complaining and grumbling, people start to sort of pull back from you or resent you or keep you at arm's length. And that's what happens, isn't it? When you turn the light on, creatures that live in the dark run away from it. Often the light repels the darkness. But there's another side to light. So when you turn the light on in a dark room, two things happen. The, the creatures that don't like the dark run away, and the creatures that are drawn to the light go to it. The moths, the flies. And that's what happens when we shine as Christians. Some people are pushed away, but others are drawn. So this, this idea of shining like lights, Paul actually gets the idea from the prophecy of Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, he talks about the, the wise, the people who follow God, shining like lights in the world. And he says, because of what they do, many will be turned to righteousness. So the effect of shining is actually an attractive effect. It draws people to, to Jesus. It draws people to, to the way of righteousness. And that's the vision that Paul's got. He says, when you shine like this, people will be drawn to you. It's attractive. But how does it actually work? verse 16, it works as we hold fast to the word of life. So the word of life is the gospel. It's the good news of our salvation. And holding fast to it means soaking ourselves in it, letting it surround us. Every day, every week, every opportunity, we remind ourselves of who we were before Christ and who we are now in Christ. We remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done in our lives. We soak in the gospel. And as we do that, we're able to shine. 
But the word holding fast here, I think it doesn't just mean holding on to. There's another meaning. It also means holding out. And the, the, the word Paul uses actually can mean both. And I think the ambiguity is deliberate. I think he, he means both. He means we hold on to the gospel and we hold out the gospel as people who shine for him. And as we do that, people are drawn. And the possible impact of this, I think, is huge. So Paul has a vision for how this church can be. And he says, as you live out your faith and people are drawn to you, that's the hope for the world. The, the crooked and twisted generation that we're part of, that we feel like sometimes we've got no hope of making a difference, he says, that's the hope. Live out the Jesus life. Live out who you are. And you won't just survive. You can thrive. You can grow. You can flourish. And you can make a difference. Maybe you know someone. Maybe you can think of someone right now um, who, who does this, who, who lives out this kind of life, this kind of Jesus-shaped life, this kind of cross-shaped life. Maybe someone you looked to as you were growing up. Maybe a mentor for you in your early days as a Christian. Maybe someone, an elderly saint who's, who's lived the path of, of Jesus before you and has, has gone the way. Maybe someone in this church and you can think of them and, and, and they serve and they give without wanting any uh, attention. And they, and they shine. They're like a light. It's encouraging, isn't it? It's encouraging to think of people who live this out. And Paul knows that. So Paul knows the power of example. And that explains why he does what he does next. So the rest of the chapter in chapter 2 he basically gives travel plans for two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, his co-workers. Uh, usually, Paul does this at the end of his letters. He usually finishes his letters with uh, travel plans, details about what's, what's happening. He doesn't put it at the end here. He puts it in the middle. Why? Because he wants to make a point. He wants to make a point that these two guys are lived out examples of what he's been talking about. So first of all, we have Timothy. And we, see about, uh, we read about him in verses 19 to 24. There. So Timothy is with Paul in prison. Um, he's heard the news about the Philippian church from Epaphroditus. Um, and he's, he's got a heart for the Philippians. And we see in verse, uh, verse 20, he, he's genuinely concerned for their welfare. You can kind of imagine him. He's there, he hears the news from Paul, Paul's in his, his room, and he's pacing up and down outside the corridor. He can't, he can't rest. He's tossing and turning in his bed. He can't sleep until he knows that the Philippians are being looked after. He's got a genuine, a genuine concern for their welfare. And Paul wants to send someone back to the Philippians to, to represent him and to, to carry out his ministry in his absence. And um, everyone else who could go backs out, except Timothy. The journey's long, the journey's dangerous. Um, it's a risk. But Timothy goes because he's not putting his own interests first. We see that there in verse 21, don't we? The others who don't haven't gone seek their own interests. But Timothy seeks the interests of others. It's almost the same wording as Paul's told the Philippians to live out in chapter 2, verse 4. Almost the same wording. He's deliberately drawing a link. He's saying, Timothy is a lived example of what I've just told you. The second example is Epaphroditus, there in verses 25 to 30. So Epaphroditus is a guy who was sent by the Philippians to send a message to, to, to Paul, and he fell ill. He fell ill, um, and he almost died. So we think this probably happened on the journey to Rome. It was a dangerous journey. Lots could have gone wrong. So Epaphroditus fell ill on this journey, but he knew his task was vital. He had a gift that was going to help Paul, and it was vital for the spread of the gospel. So he kept going. Even though he was ill, he should have stopped to rest. He kept going at great personal risk, and he almost died. 
He almost gave up his life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of getting this gift to Paul. The, 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 the word in verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking. He's got, got the sense of gambling. He almost gambled his life away because he so wanted to complete his task. And then Epaphroditus heard, uh, hears that they've heard he's ill. And then verse 26, he's, he's distressed because of their distress. So he hears, he, he hears they've heard, and he's concerned, not for himself, but for them. He's worried about the impact that the news will have on them of his illness. He's not thinking of his own interests. He's thinking of theirs. And actually, the, the word that Paul uses here to describe him almost going to his death is the same word he uses to describe Jesus going to his death. He's deliberately drawing a comparison. Epaphroditus is set up as someone who is living a Christ-like life. So Timothy, Epaphroditus, two men, they're known to the Philippians, they're, they're Paul's co-workers, they're people they know, and they're living out what Paul's saying to them to do. It's so encouraging, isn't it? It's like Paul kind of puts legs on the ideas that he's communicating to them. He's saying, look, here's two examples, I can name them. These two guys, they're living it out. So encouraging. When we think of someone who we know of, who's made an impact on our life, it puts legs on the ideas, doesn't it? So encouraging to think about examples. And then finally, almost in passing, Paul gives the, the example of himself. That's in verses 17 to 18. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So a drink offering was something that was added to a burnt offering in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, in the Israel uh, Israelites, um, and the drink offering was kind of a sign of that person's dedication to God. So that you're pouring out a drink, maybe wine, and it's a sign, this sacrifice is coming from the whole of me, I'm giving all of myself to you. And Paul says, I'm being poured out, my life is being poured out like that drink offering. I, it's like a sign of his complete dedication to God. And he says, what you're doing, Philippian church, is like a sacrifice. You're giving to me, you're standing firm for the gospel in, in the face of opposition, and what I'm doing is like a sacrifice. And he sees the two kind of merging. Our two sacrifices are combining. And he says, that gives me joy. It makes me rejoice. And it should make you rejoice too. And the reason Paul says that is because he's not thinking of himself. He's not concerned about his own sacrifice and what it's costing him. He's just happy because it joins with the Philippian sacrifice. He's another example, a lived out example of what he's saying. So whatever sacrifices we could make, whatever sacrifices you have made or are making or are considering making for the gospel, for Jesus, they're worth it. Paul says, all the sacrifices you're making and the sacrifices I'm making, they're worth it. Because on the day of Christ, he looks forward to the day when everything will be shown up for what it really is. On the day of Christ, if you keep going, I'll be proud. Because actually our sacrifices for Jesus are the only thing that lasts. The, the sacrifice that comes from our faith, that's what counts. That's what, what really counts. So just think about the power of example. Maybe think about that person that you know who lives this out, who lives out the way of the cross. This DNA of Jesus, that person who serves and, serves and never complains. Think of that person who shines, that person who's shining. God's mission strategy is to have churches of people like that. Churches full of people who are living out, working out their salvation. With fear and trembling, they know it's God who's working in them, but they're living it out. They're living the way of Jesus. They're, they're walking the path. They're being who they're meant to be, being who God's made them. 
And as his people in the churches that he's made do that, and as they hold out the offer of the word of life to a, a needy world, people are drawn. And that's how his kingdom grows. It sounds kind of crazy. It sounds simple. It sounds a bit foolish that God's mission strategy is just through ordinary people living out ordinary lives shaped like Jesus, shaped like the cross. But that's what it is. As we do that, as we live out the cross-shaped life, we shine and people are drawn to him. And it sounds crazy, but actually, if you think about most stories of people that you know that have become Christians, what they'll say is something like, I met these Christians and there was something different about them. And I just, I was drawn to it and I couldn't stop myself. I wanted to know more and I started finding out about Jesus and I just gave myself to him. But it starts by seeing Christians living differently, seeing ordinary Christians living Jesus-shaped lives. And look, maybe you think, you look at the world and you think, I can't make a difference. Maybe you're in a workplace where it's just hard to be a Christian and it just feels corrosive to your soul and it's just hard and you think, I can never make a difference here. Maybe you're, you're in a family and a member of your family, a close member of your family isn't a Christian and their heart's just hard to Jesus and you think, I can never make a difference here. What hope is there? Maybe you're just one of those people that just, whenever you look at the news, you're depressed, seeing the state of our world and you think, what difference can we make? What hope is there? Well, Paul, Paul says, be encouraged. Because as we live out the Jesus-shaped life, we shine. And it's those quiet acts of service, quietly giving yourself, quietly serving, quietly, no matter how small, going the way of the cross, going to the lowest place, like Jesus, that shine. And they shine brightly. And they do make a difference. No matter how small, no matter how weak it feels, it's God's mission strategy for saving the world. So work out your salvation. Be who you are with fear and trembling, because it's God who works in you. So willing to work for his good purpose. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the gospel. Thank you for the good news of our salvation, that we're adopted into a new family with incredible new privileges, with you as our Father, with the Holy Spirit living within us. Father, it's an awesome thing to have the God of heaven living in us. We thank you for that. And I pray that you would help us, strengthen us, empower us to live that out, to work out our salvation, to be who you've made us to be. Lord, strengthen us, I pray. And would we make a difference? As we live this out, would we shine? Would we be attractive to the people around us? And would you draw more people to yourself? Would you build your kingdom through us, we pray. Amen.